Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And last week, you heard a show where we featured neurosurgeon Richard Rowe and ethicist Father Tapaholchik defending the belief that brain death is real death. While widely accepted in the medical community, there are many Catholic physicians and ethicists who are not convinced of the concept itself or of the application of that concept in the current practice of medicine. So to provide symmetry in our two shows about brain death, we are bringing in both a neurologist and a philosopher ethicist who believe that brain death is not real death to present an alternative viewpoint to last week's show. To start this show, we have a neurologist, Dr. Tom Zabiega. He lived and was born in Poland and lives in the United States now. He went to medical school at Southern Illinois University School of Medicine and did his neurology residency in the University of Chicago Hospitals. He's a member of the Pope John Paul II Academy for Human Life and the Family. He's the former vice president of the Catholic Physician Guild of Chicago, former regional director for the Catholic Medical Association. He's married to Maria, has five living children, ages about 4 to 13, resides in Bolingbroke, Illinois, and practices in the southern Chicago suburbs. Tom, actually, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thank you. Thank you for having me. You know, Tom, I think it's important to point out, as you've told Andrew and me, that you were once supportive of the diagnosis of brain death and that you've changed your mind. So let's walk through what led to that. What was it that led you initially to support the concept of a medical determination of brain death? Well, you know, in neurology, any specialty, you're trained in a certain way, and you, you know, you study, you learn concepts, and you start believing in the concepts which you're taught. And, for example, I was always against euthanasia, but brain death seemed like, well, you know, someone's that uh, has that much brain damage well you know maybe there is something uh, it's just brain death and then i started um reading in actually good catholic literature about the magazines and other things about different other opinions about that and they seem to make a lot of sense to me and uh but the interesting thing was the thing that really put me on top that sort of made me think that this is really not uh th that brain death is not a correct concept was actually there was a debate about it in a um, in a magazine called the Catholic World Report. It used to be a magazine like that. I'm not sure if it's out. Yes, it's I used anymore. to read that. And there was a, a letter. There was a, de a debate about this, and there was a letter by a woman. It was a, uh, just a reader. Just had a question. Why? It was a discussion about a woman who had been um, who was pregnant and had been pronounced brain dead, and she, uh, you know. They kept her on the uh, life support for a couple more months so that the baby could be born. And she posed a very simple question, this, this letter writer. How is it that a li living human being can be born inside a corpse or can develop inside a corpse and then be born from a corpse? And to my mind, that was <laughs> the sort of the thing that put me to thinking, well, she's right. There's no way. That's a good you know, question. A, 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 and, and and therefore, if a if a being is alive and there's another human being that can live in that or develop in that that human being, that human being cannot be dead. So so and then after that, of course, I looked into it more broadly and 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 everything I read was confirming that uh, you know, what I now believe. And you had mentioned also that the relationship between brain death and organ donation, you, you have found problematic in some ways. Is that right? Yes. Well, I, I think the whole brain death uh, idea was developed because of organ donation. Uh, because the idea came about that there was just, in the 1960s, they were starting to do transplantations. And they didn't, uh, there was just not enough uh, donors because they had to have live donors. And then it was interesting, there was a, um, a Dr. Uh, Beecher in Harvard that was trying to have Dean Ebert of Harvard um, basically start a committee that was going to uh, define brain death. And he, uh, Dean Beecher sort of like, I'm sorry, Dean uh, Ebert was not so uh, happy with the idea until in, in late 1967, the first heart transplant occurred and uh, by um, Christian Barnard. Barnard and it was done on a patient who was he basically uh, a, a patient that was had uh, would now be considered brain dead, 
and and he let his heart stop for five minutes before he did the transplantation because he didn't want to be accused at that time of, of killing the patient that he was, that was the donor. And at that point, suddenly, the, um, D Dean Ebert said, no, no, let's do this committee. And the committee met. And basically, from the beginning, it was basically to define this brain death so that they could have more organ donations. And they went through six revisions. And the first five revisions were very blatantly saying that this is really basically for organ donation. But Dean Ebert sort of made it, we can't do it that way because then it's going to sound really bad that we're just... Like the end justifies the means. And, and yeah, right, the end justifies the means. And, and that is, is really, I don't see any other reason to have even the concept of brain death because if... You know, if you don't need it for that purpose, why would you need to even define somebody brain Has death? Has the concept of brain death or the definition of it changed in the last 60 years since it was first proposed? Um, it has, it, the, the definition per se hasn't, it, it hasn't changed, but the... Criteria? Uh, initially, initially when, the, when, when the first criteria or the first idea came out was that you had these patients who were devastatingly, had devastating... Uh, brain damage and would basically deteriorate within a matter of hours. But if but if you look at most of the patients that are, uh, are proclaimed brain dead these days, they can be kept alive. Sorry, kept <laughs> if if they were not proclaimed brain dead and not taken off the respirator, or ventilator, they could be kept on the ventilator for years. There was a study by uh, Dr. Schumann of UCLA, which uh, looked at 175 uh, patients who were pronounced brain dead and they were not taken off like nowadays they would be taken off the ventilator right away and uh, a large proportion of them lived several months four year, four of them lived over one year and one lived almost 20 years all so on a ventilator a dead, Tom? Brain dead people a person lived for 20 were they years all on a ventilator mm-hmm. right they so were also if you took these all off the ventilator would they have all died if they were taken uh, off the ventilator yes well because then they would if they could breathe then they wouldn't be on the ventilator. Brain dead, Thank right, you for right clarifying. And, you know, last week in, in our previous episode, we learned about something called the apnea test, where the ventilator is removed to see if the patient could breathe or not. And that's one of the, the criteria that's, that's commonly used. What concerns do you have about this test? Right. So, so th- again, there's a concern of brain death as a definition, and then what is involved in defining somebody as brain dead, which is actually a separate debate in a sense, but but it's obviously uh, something that the apnea test is, is universally used. The problem with the apnea test is, and I, I'll just mention it through this this uh, discussion I had once at a hospital. We had a meeting about setting up brain death criteria. And I asked a simple question to the group of neurologists and pulmonologists that were there. I said, would you ever do the apnea test, which is taking, you know, having someone not basically not have any oxygen for several minutes, would you do that to a patient who's just comatose, not, defi- not considered brain dead, but just comatose? They said, no, you can never do that because that would cause brain damage. <laughs> then I said, why can't you, then how can you do it in a someone, if you already know that the person is brain dead, then why do you need it? Uh, but if the person is not brain dead, then you could actually cause them to become, you know, to have that much damage. And actually it was interesting because after that meeting, the head of the ICU who was at that meeting, the pulmonologist, he sent a memo that in his ICU, there will no be, no, he will not allow for the apnea test to be performed anymore. But in many places, like Nevada, for example, uh, you cannot even have, the, the family doesn't have an option. You know, you have to, you have to, the family has to sign up for almost every procedure, but it, cannot, it, it has no option to refuse the apnea test if, if the doctors believe that that should be done. The apnea test gives me images of kind of the Salem witchcraft trials where if you drown, I guess you were not a witch. Is that <laughs> right. kind of the same thing? That if, if they really are brain dead, then it shouldn't be necessary, but it's used as evidence of brain death. Yes. Okay. At, at what point did you finally feel that brain death was, in fact, not real death? Was there something in your practice that you saw or mostly that, that good question posed in the, in the journal before? No, it's, I mean, the, the question was, you know, I obviously researched it afterwards, and it's, it's, to me it's sort of like the idea of an OBGYN who understands abortion is wrong but contraception is, is okay. And then they find, wait a second, that's not true. And the same thing was with me. I always knew as euthanasia was wrong. And then I saw, you know, as you know, it would be a long, longer di- uh, discussion here, but it essentially led me to the idea that what's the difference between brain death and euthanasia? It's basically a form of it. 
uh, you know, and that's that's what what bothered me, and that's so, what led me to sort of. So, Tom, right. there's a key distinction I'm looking at here to see where you fall with this question. Is it possible to have such a thing as brain death or brain failure if there were rigorous enough criteria, or is it truly an impossible concept regardless of the criteria? I think it's an impossible concept because, especially in ethics, you want something that's and you know, uh, Dr. Colosi will probably describe this better. But there's just you know, there has to be an absolute in a sense, right? I mean, we don't we don't have uh, exceptions to abortion or exceptions to uh, artificial contraception or things like that. It's it's still an innocent life that is taken away in this case for the, for the, for maybe to save a lot of other lives, but we don't we don't do that. In, in, in medical ethics, especially not Catholic ethics. So even if there was no blood flow to the brain, you don't think there would be such a concept of brain death? No, because the person is still alive. And, 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 and one interesting caveat is nowadays in Europe and Canada, they don't even sort of care too much about the brain death idea because they can actually, they're starting to think about this uh, donation, Euthanasia. death by donation. Yes, death by uh, donation. And, and, and basically... It's going to be sort of like a ethical discussion in the future, but a practical discussion may not be because if if it goes the direction it's going, it, it won't even matter. So, so just to just to clarify one thing, I mean we appreciate the the slippery slope risk here and what we've seen already. I guess you said that the folks that have brain death declarations made they're still alive. At what point would you consider them dead? Well, I, I would consider them dead when. You know the the idea of when does the body leave the you know the 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 soul, soul. leave the body that's yes. a difficult concept, but uh, you know a, a a dead person you know a person who has uh, whose heart and lung stops, their whole body is dying right. I mean they eventually start decaying. I'm not saying you have to say that when they're decaying, but they're dead. There's nothing. There's not nothing functioning. Whereas in a person who has brain death. Uh, even by the strictest criteria, even though when it's not the strict criteria, by the way, there's a lot of things like the hypothalamus and the pituitary are still functioning because their thermoregulation is still functioning. Their blood pressure control is still functioning. Uh, uh, they don't develop something called diabetes insipidus, which is uh, basically getting rid of a lot of fluids because there's a lack of a certain hormone in the in the pituitary gland. So so it's actually not well, you know, it, uh, uh, it's not strictly defined now, but even if it was strictly defined, the person still, the rest of their body is functioning. So, so it's like you, you, when you see a dead plant or you see a dead animal, you know it's dead. You so know, we, it, it, we can't it, rely just solely on the brain. We have to see the other normal things that would be associated with death, decomposition, failure of multiple systems. Is that, that what you would say? Yes, the body is an integrative system, so it has to be Great. completely dead, not just so one Tom, part of it. So, Tom, we just have a minute left. Um, uh, Pete Colosi just messaged me. Do you, in Nevada? Do they are they told the risks of the apnea test before it's performed? Or they not just, that I, they, they're usually not told the apnea test risks to anybody, even in other places. Okay. So, so Good it's, point. Not, it's not 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 done. And then what that's, final that's, point do you want to leave with listeners about the concept of brain death? One point, and it's a practical point to people, please do not in state sign automatically, no matter where you stand on this, don't sign that you're an automatically an organ donor. Because <laughs> what they will do is they will do the, make the decisions for you. And, and you have to allow, you have to, you have to have yourself or your, the family be the decision makers, no matter where you stand. And if you wanted to have them be organ donors and you believe in brain death, then make that decision at that point. Not because you signed your, the, the, you, you know, the back of your uh, driver's license. Man, it I sounds know many, like there's stories there we might have to bring it back for. Yes, and I, I know ICU doctors who tell me the same thing. Don't sign that on the back of your license. Tom Zabiega, neurologist, thank you so much for being with us here on Dr. Doctor. The practical aspect of this was just what we needed to hear. Thank you very much. And before our break, we have our medical trivia question of the day. Now, Dr. Zabiega mentioned the pituitary gland, which is the master gland of the body that controls the production of many hormones in the body. Which of the following endocrine or hormone-producing glands does the pituitary not directly influence? Is it A, the adrenal glands that make steroid hormones, B, the ovaries that make estrogen and progesterone, C, the pancreas that makes insulin, D, the testicles that make testosterone, or E, the thyroid gland that makes thyroid hormone? 
We'll be back with more Dr. Doctor and our second guest just after the break. We're back now with our second guest on this episode of Dr. Doctor entitled Brain Death is Not Real Death. Coming back again to Dr. Doctor is Dr. PhD type Pete Colosi. Pete's the Associate Professor of Philosophy at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. He's also an instructor at the Catholic Medical Association Medical Student Boot Camp. He was previously a professor at Franciscan University of Steubenville and St. Charles Borromeo Seminary in Philadelphia. He is a philosopher and ethicist. Pete, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. Thanks. It's great to be back. <laughs> Pete, this is your, your third episode. So your first mm -hmm. two, we have this concept called charity and clarity mm -hmm. uh, that you use in discussing hot-button bioethical issues. And it was actually our first episode way back in the summer of 2018 that received over 1,000 listens. We, now our, our record podcast is over 5,000 listens. And that was the first coronavirus interview we did this year. Anyway, you have the challenging task not of overcoming 5,000 podcast listens, but of teaching <laughs> college students how to think. And mm -hmm. you find the charity and clarity approach very helpful. What mm -hmm. is the essence of this approach? Well, the charity side means uh, it's a word for love. And in this case, it means listening to someone with whom you disagree um, so well that you can repeat back to them their view and their reasons for it um, in such a way that they'll actually think you agree with them. And that doesn't mean you do agree with them. It means you listened well. And then the clarity part is when you get to respond. Um, and the point about clarity is you have to make sense or strive to make sense, I tell the students. And what that means is come up with reasons, even if they need to take a few class periods later to think it through better. And um, that idea, college students are open to it at the beginning of the semester, more so than in our culture, I think. Um, <laughs> and then I talk about the emotions that can happen inside and how you might learn something from someone, even if you don't give up your original position. But sometimes people change um, completely by doing this, this process. And charity and clarity, I think, is a great interlude into the brain death discussion, because I know I've talked to a lot of folks with varying opinions here. And, and one of the things that I was kind of surprised to find out is that a 2012 study showed that only 3% of neurologists were not comfortable with brain death. There were many different reasons everybody else was comfortable with it, but I guess what I'm kind of wondering is how much of a debate really is there around brain death? Well, I didn't know about that 2012 study of neurologists, but I, the way you just posed it, I would say the study might be flawed because, as we just heard, there's no agreement, actually, on what the term brain death even means. And Dr. Which is what that study showed. The 97% the who did agree with it all had different reasons. Right. Dr. Schumann, actually, he cites a study in some of his work in which 30 to 50% of clinicians associated with brain death and organ transplantation admit that they're unclear on what it even means. Wow. Um, so, so um, and then in the realm of people, as you both have already said, who discuss this issue within Catholicism and philosophy and medicine and the Linacre Quarterly issue itself, it's way higher than 3% of, of human beings who have serious questions um, about this. And this might surprise you, but um, on the cutting edge of secular bioethics, so Robert Trug and Peter Singer, they do not think brain dead people are dead. Peter Singer? Right. And I'll get to wow. that later in the show. That's wow. amazing. But, he, but he's right. He's just going by the medical evidence. Yeah, we wouldn't think we'd agree with him on about anything. Right. The difference is that they don't think there's, as we heard already in the first segment, Singer and Trug think that if, as long as those people have signed a consent form, it should be okay to do death by donation. But, but we say, no, you can't kill somebody because of the fifth commandment. But, but the far left, if you will, and the far right on this topic, both admit that the brain dead people aren't, aren't dead. And, and so consent makes it okay in their mind. Yes. Uh, so, so Pete, how can your charity and clarity approach help on this particular subject, brain death? This is a, a very touchy question you just asked me, and I almost hesitate to say it. Um, but if you really think about the ramifications of this question, um, if the people with a brain death diagnosis are not dead, then that means every vital organ extraction for transplantation involved the killing of the patient by the extraction of the vital organ, which is death a violation of the fifth. Yeah, that means it's, it means we've been doing it. But, but we didn't know we were doing it. The people were alive. And so this, that's why the intra-Catholic sphere 
the discussion in there is very difficult for, for a doctor, many of whom maybe are members of the Catholic Medical Association who've been involved in this work with good intentions, um, who is a Catholic, to be open to the possibility that these people were alive would be existentially very difficult. And there's a pastoral care issue there in processing that if they're not dead. And it would also mean, by the way, that all Catholic hospitals and all people who hold to the fifth commandment should stop doing unpaired vital organ transplantations. Um, And it would also mean that the people who are waiting for them wouldn't get them if we're going to live by this. So it's a, it's one of the hardest topics to have a discussion about because of those reasons. And I think for our listeners, you you bring up unpaired uh, organ donation. So for listeners, unpaired means something we only have one of that you die by donating. Whereas with a kidney, or if you could do a partial liver or partial pancreas, or even one lung, conceivably, the donor could still live. Right. So we're, we're separating that. We're not saying that a living donor who stays living after the donation, we're not talking that that is immoral, correct? Right. We're not talking about that. So what is death simple answer cold stiff blue that's to be medically absolutely certain but let's go a little bit deeper um one is when the soul leaves the body that's a philosophical answer in one way and a theological answer in another way so if you think about that blue cold stiff corpse and remember the person when they were alive uh, there's something different about those two the life principle is gone. Aristotle called that life principle the soul. That soul isn't material. And there are arguments for that, but we won't go through those in the, in the show. Um, but since it's not physical, the soul, you can't detect it medically um, when it leaves the body. You'd need to be a little funny, a solometer. But there is no such thing <laughs> as a solometer, and there never will be. Um, and, so, and so in medicine, doctors look for signs of death. And that is an important part of medicine. And there can be mistakes and there have been mistakes. Um, The traditional sort of medical definition of death um, is the cessation of all vital functions of the whole body. And that was traditionally before 1968 measured or judged medically to have happened by confirming cardiopulmonary cessation and waiting a while. Um, And then theologically, uh, here's a little two-sentence quote from a, an, an official church document. The church affirms that a spiritual element survives and subsists after death, an element allow, endowed with consciousness and will, so that the human self subsists. To designate this element, the church uses the word soul. So the soul is gone from the body, waiting for the resurrection, and the body disintegrates. That's death. Okay, and I guess one one of the things that I'm I'm kind of wondering about is people are coming at death from so many different angles. What part of the brain death discussion do you think is people just talking past each other, not doing the clarity part of the charity and clarity? Yeah, I think I think there's all sorts of reasons why all of us don't want to participate in that. Um, some of the ones I mentioned earlier, it's hard. Um, we have to give up our own prejudices or our own um, things that we like. Or, or and, then, and then the confusion of what brain death is, maybe if that's what you're asking, um, that might be another reason why. In fact, maybe I could just talk about that a little bit. What is brain death? Um, and that's one of the reasons why we're talking past each other. So the phrase brain death, if you just take it at face value, means the death of the organ in your skull. That differs from the traditional definition of death because brain death happens while other vital functions and organs of the body are working well and not stopping as an integrated whole and supporting actually the health of the rest of the body. We can talk about that more later, citing Schumann. And the traditional definition of death was the cessation of those. So that's the difference. Um, Now, if we go deeper on two points, we could say that those who hold to brain death in the face value definition, so the death of the organ in your skull, that has many different meanings too, which we'll get to. They conclude from that that the patient is also what I'm going to call dead dead. Uh, I want to coin the term for this show, dead dead, for us to use for the rest of the show for the sake of clarity to distinguish between just the organ and the skull being dead. Um, from the soul having left the body, that would be dead, dead. 
Um, and then the second deeper point is that there's no agreement on even what the organ in the skull being dead is. Um, in the United States, it's supposed to be the death of the whole brain, whereas in the UK, brain death can be just the brain stem Damn, being right. dead. Yes. And some other parts of the brain are still functioning, but, but they don't want any consciousness to be happening. Um, but some hold that the that brain dead doesn't mean actual death of the physical organ, but only its lack of functionality. And that's hard to grasp, but I, I get myself to understand that by imagining a friend of mine who I buy coffee from whose right arm is completely lacking function. It's just hanging at his side, but there's blood in there and it's not dead. It's not decaying, but it has complete lack of functionality. So one definition that some people use for brain death is it can, there can still be blood flow, maybe minimal blood flow or parts of the brain, like um, the doctor in the first part mentioned the hypothalamus sometimes is still working um, and other parts. Um, so that's even partial functionality. Um, so, so all of these and more are different meanings of, and then there's the colloquial meaning. If you go talk to people on the street, they think anyone in a coma or a vegetative state or they use brain death in a very non-professional way. So but that's not the way that any neurologist would use it. But even the neurologists differ around the world and among each other in the few different types I just gave you. Um, whole brain, partial brain. Right, but I mean a blood. coma compared to brain yeah. death. Right. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. They would, that, they would say they're alive. Question. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. keep, let, let's keep moving. Cause go, we go. have a lot to cover. You're yep. a philosopher. Some people might say, why should I listen to a philosopher on this instead of a physician that's an expert in the nervous system? Well, first I'll say I have many such physicians on my side <laughs> in this camp. And secondly, um, you know, I suppose the questioner doesn't mean me in particular, but why philosophy should be allowed to be part of the discussion. And there, John Paul is always saying, even in his documents about this topic, that anthropologists, philosophical anthropology and Catholic anthropology and science need to work together. And also, there are profound and disturbing human questions, some of which we've mentioned, related to this topic that are not answerable or even approachable via a science experiment. This is how it works. Scientists can be philosophers, and, and I do my best, by the way, to read up on these topics. And the reason why, actually, one of the main reasons why 10 or 12 years ago I became an associate member of, of the CMA was to stay close to you clinicians so I, to protect myself from becoming the proverbial armchair philosopher. <laughs> so okay. those are some reasons. Let's move on to something we just, you hinted at, and so did Tom Zabiega, and we talked about in last week's episode, and that is this 1968 paper published mm -hmm. in the Journal of the American Medical Association, the first medical literature proposing brain death criteria, mm -hmm. and in it, it lists two reasons for considering these criteria, and they sound, to anybody, utilitarian, freeing up hospital beds and finding more organ donors. So the question we asked the last show, and we'll ask you, is how can a Catholic look at this and not think that the authors are recommending an end justifies the means approach to brain death? Uh, well, to use the term at face value again, no one could read those lines and not see that they are utilitarian in just the way you say. Okay. Um, and by the very words of the report, the authors, without using the term utilitarian, seemed quite happy to admit that. And so did Henry Beecher, as we heard before. And you, it's interesting to look up his correspondence. But, but one more point about this. Yes. In your question about that passage, I would say that you left out the most striking point. Which is? If you, if you look at it there, they say, quote, the burden is great on patients who suffer permanent loss of intellect on their families and on the hospitals, end quote. But how could the burden be great on the patient if the patient is dead, dead? <laughs> exactly. It couldn't. And so I would just point out that from day one, the promoters of brain death openly admitted in the very article that got it all going that the patients are not dead, dead. Man. That is, I really enjoy philosophy for that reason, because that, that is something that's lost on a lot of us physicians, you know, if that's not something that we're, we're used to thinking about. You know, I guess one kind of follow-up, just to highlight, especially the role philosophy has to play, some, some have asserted that death is a medical definition only. Do you think that's fair to say, or does it have to include philosophy as well? Um. It has to include philosophy as well. And ultimately, I would also say it has to include um, theology. 
but you can make a lot of these arguments um, without um, without using revelation. Um, but it has to be both. And 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 medicine can't, as I said before, can't actually detect the moment when the soul leaves the body, or even Which, when the life. That's a dichotomous moment. You can't be right. You're not partially dead. You're either alive or dead, right? Right. Unless you're in Princess Bride, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and scientists look for the signs that it has happened. Um, gotcha. That's an excellent place to stop after our first uh, segment with Pete Colosi. We'll be back with more on Brain Death is Not Real Death after the break here on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Pete Colosi talking about why brain death is not real brain death. Pete, what are current doubts and disagreements? What what ones exist regarding the report uh, from JAMA back in 68 and what has followed from it? Well, um, one is really, and we're going to talk about the dead donor rule, but basically that is the rule that says um, for a vital organ to be removed, the patient has to be dead first. And the report really what it wanted to do was make it legally allowable for vital organs to be removed without violating the dead donor rule. And so that's why they made a new um, rule of death. So that's the main disagreement. Are these people actually dead or not or was that as we said before just a utilitarian um convenience um so that's the main one um the tests the tests are very controversial which we've heard a little bit about the apnea test um already the noxious uh stimuli tests are problematic I would say, because just like in the previous part of the show, you wouldn't do an apnea test to those. And I know noxious, noxious stimuli are part of medicine, but usually to smelling salts or something, not, not all these different things they, they do. And, and Alan, Alan, it seems very painful to me to do that to somebody to find out if they're dead. Um, so that's another, people have lots of questions about the tests. And then Schumann points out that there's a logical flaw in the tests. Um, you know, if I say to you guys, whoever is a mailman has a job. You two guys, Tom and Andrew, have jobs. Therefore, you two are mailmen. That's, that's not true. That's a logical now, fallacy. <laughs> now, because there's a, there's a fa false po possible counterexample. Doctor, whoever is dead dead won't flinch when ice water is introduced into their ear. Right. Therefore, whoever doesn't flinch when ice water is introduced into their ear is dead dead. Possible false counterexample, someone under anesthesia, someone in a coma, someone with hypothermia. It doesn't logically hold up even, um, but it's worse than that. Um, there's all sorts of reasons why a living person, and when you look at all the counter, all the people who've come alive from it, um, the tests don't, there's even one example is enough. But there are many. Yes. So, Pete, I have noticed being on an outside, since this doesn't have anything to do with my specialty, people get super heated about this in Catholic circles. Right. What causes that? I think it's what I said before. And I have profound, I think you got to read people like Therese of Lisieux if you want to get into this discussion, who talk. she says things like, no matter, and just know that God's love is so infinite. It's like, I think, um, Dr. Tom said this before that the people, the um, gynecologists, Catholics who realized late in their career, like Les, uh, that they'd been sterilizing and prescribing, that must be psychologically and spiritually quite overwhelming. And, and there's some processing to do there to face it. And I think this is like that. If these people aren't dead, then what have I been doing? That is the main reason why. Um, and I, I have a friend whose father got a heart, and when he woke up, he was tormented. He wanted to know who, who it came from. And the daughter said, I'm going to research it, and you, you recover, and we'll look at that later. Um, so, Now, one of the things that people in favor of brain death diagnosis point to a lot are comments made by JP2 to uh, transplant surgeons. What were those comments, and what, what's your assessment of them? Well, there's a 2000 speech and there's a 2005 speech. And the first point to make is he defines death in the way that we've defined it already. And he has great respect for organ donation as long as it doesn't kill or mutilate um, the patient. And he admits fully that it is medical professionals who um, look for and accurately identify the signs that death um, has happened. But he does say, and this is quite striking, more than once, 
quote, the complete and irreversible cessation of all brain activity in the cerebrum, cerebellum, and brainstem, end quote. There are so many cases where that is not the case. Um, and so, first of all, we would have to fight just as hard as pro-life people against all those. But, but Schumann shows that even if that is the case, um, their bodies are not um, dead. But then the other main argument that the people quote John Paul II on is the one where he says that um, these, these, these neurological criteria he says, do not seem to conflict with a sound anthropology. And I always emphasize that seem. It's a conditional sentence. And now we have so much evidence that I think we at least, like Christian Brueger very well writes about, do not have what's called moral certainty, meaning we do have reasonable doubts now about whether these people are alive. And John Paul left room in his statement for that. What, what has changed since John Paul? I mean, so, some would say that that would be a ringing endorsement of whole brain death, or at least an allowance. What new evidence do we have to suggest that JP2 may not have said that today if he knows what, if he knew then what we don't now? Well, I mean, the biggest evidence are the cases um, that Schumann brings up like, which was mentioned earlier, the one of TK, who, when he was, that's his, that's his um, secret name. Um, TK was a boy who had meningitis when he was four and a half years old and was in a brain death state um, for 20 and a half years. And all of Schumann's thing, I have a Schumann's list hole, hole here, Re respiration, nutrition, homeostasis, elimination and detoxification and recycling of cellular waste throughout the body, energy, balance, interactions among the liver, the endocrine systems, um, normal body temperature, fighting infections, some women and with long-term brain death had gestated babies. TK went through puberty. He grew into a man. Um, so, and his brain during the autopsy at the end, they did a brain autopsy. It was like calcified and there was some gritty matter in the middle of it. And there were, they did a microscopic analysis of certain parts. There were no neurons. And what I just read to you, all that whole body functioning was happening. So that, I think, would indicate uh, serious reason for doubt. In a case of true brain death, like necrosis of the whole brain. So you think he would even turn not only on the second statement he made, but even the first, that there is a, a true possibility or a true reality that could be considered brain death under rigorous criteria. At least the first one you read sounded like that to me. Yeah, I think if he met um, TK when he, when he was 18 years old and heard the story, I think, for what it's worth, I think John Paul would say, oops, that's a reason for doubt. Yeah, and, and I guess that's one of the things that's worth, worth searching for as well, is are we trying to make our, our best guess, or are we trying to develop moral certitude for the ongoing practice of, of brain death diagnosis. Right, right. And right. I think we I, want moral certitude, don't we, Pete? We, yes, we want that. That's why you're, I know you're going to ask at the show about some people to read. And one guy is, is Christian Brueger, who has a couple of great articles about this, who's gradually evolved on the topic toward doubting it. And he so, because coming from that position, so carefully and analyzes um, – how we don't have moral certainty anymore. Um, you, now, Pete, you say there's a relationship between the Catholic debate on this and the secular debate on this. What right. is that connection? So um, people like who I mentioned before, Robert Trug and Peter Singer, they're sort of the most famous two on this and the secular cutting edge of bioethics have also read Schumann and studied um, these people with brain death and they grant that the idea of an integrated whole body where all the parts are actually working together, healing wounds and all the things I mentioned before cannot be said to be dead. If you go by that biological one. Now those guys have what's called a consciousness definition of, of loss of personhood. But we as Catholics don't go for that. We, we don't say that if you have diminished consciousness, you're not a person. That means every time you and I went to um, fall asleep into a state of dreamless sleep, we would 
stop being a person. Or if you, if you think that's the definition of death, we would die every time we went into um, dreamless sleep. So, so that's one thing that has changed over the years. There's, there's the, the biological one. And, and you may have heard about the 2008 um, president by president's council on bioethics. Mm-hmm. They actually granted in that after Schumann presented that, um, that, that the body does not disintegrate when brain death happens. And so they made a sort of, um, odd definition of commerce with the environment, which you don't hear much about anymore because it's not really sustainable as a definition of death. Um, And then there's the personhood one. So, so Singer and Trug, the secular people, um, they think that if a person has had informed consent and uh, signed a consent form, then it should be allowed. This is a violation of the fifth commandment to us. It should be allowed that the act by which the person is dead is the cutting them open and extracting of the organ. That will kill them. That violates the fifth commandment, but that will make the organs as fresh as possible. They use that as an argument, that fact, because it still has full oxygen, um, instead of waiting like they do in DCD, um, they use that as a reason to bolster the morality of doing that (laughs) because they don't care about killing. It's a little backwards, isn't it? Yeah. What what is global ischemic penumbra, and and why is it important for this debate? So that now here I I grant back to your first question. I am in no way, <laughs> shape, or form a clinician, but it's very interesting. And Dr. Quombra Quombra has has done work on this, and basically, it's um low level blood flow in the brain. And I read an article by Joseph Ebla. He's a medical doctor, and and I read Quombra and listened to Quombra. And basically, it seems that people with severe brain injury, SBI, go into this state of GIP, global ischemic penumbra, which is a very low level of blood flow in the brain, which is undetectable or can now be detected with high-level tests. But the thing about, so, so that means there's still functionality in the brain, okay? So that means you can't just go by the bedside tests. You have to check for that. Now, but... Ebla was saying, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, E-B-L-E, was saying that um, that actually has a purpose. It's part of the healing process for SBIs. And he says, if it lasts for two days, the brain can come back. And Dr. Quombra has developed some hormonal treatments to help the healing process that GIP does work better. And the danger is, as Ebla points out, that nowadays, after accidents, they are declared brain dead and the organs are removed before 48 hours. But that's the time you need for the GIP to work and possibly even help the person heal. That is fascinating. You taught me something medical today as a <laughs> okay. philosopher, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so then how do Catholic physicians, or any Catholic in favor of brain death, respond to the point you just made about global ischemic penumbra? Well, they say that we should do the tests now, but and, and, and maybe I'm reading him wrong, so, so I'm willing to be corrected on this, but I did read Father Pacholtik's latest uh, writing on this in the, healthcare, in the latest edition of the healthcare manual of the NCBC, and he has some lines in there where he says, if the bedside tests are ambiguous, then you should do the test for the blood flow. But unless I'm missing something, which I'm willing to be corrected on, I would say if the bedside tests are at all ambiguous, you stop. Um, so that's one point. And then, but, um, the blood flow tests, I think have to be done now. Um, and if there's blood flow, that's functionality and it might even be this GIP. And we learned in last week's show that nobody seems to require anything besides bedside tests. They can be used in addition, but they're not required. Right. And I think the more we learn, the more doubt comes from that procedure. It definitely highlights, I think, from from the medical standpoint that philosophers would do it differently. You know, you want to be sure what you're doing is the right thing. And and doctors, especially secular doctors, are not thinking about that regularly. Yes, secular ones aren't, but the Catholic ones and the ones in the CMA are. So I don't mean to criticize their intentions. I, the, the Catholic doctor, I think all the Catholic doctors who are debating this in the in the quarterly, I don't know them all, but I'm assuming, um, rightly, I think, goodwill and the desire to know the truth, okay? But you are right that the secular ones, they don't care about um, this idea of a natural death versus dying by killing. We think everyone needs to be cared for with ordinary care and loved until they die a natural death, and they don't think that. They think you can kill people. 
So how do you think we get past this, even within the Catholic sphere, where there is so much heat right now generated? I mean, it's taken us this many years just to come to a Linear Quarterly issue, mm -hmm. debating it, and to, you know, doing these episodes on the, the CME's radio show. Right. Well, pray. We all need to pray. We all need to be humble on both sides of it. <laughs> Beg God for grace. Um, and, um, and, then, and then really talk to each other like this and look at the evidence. Um, and one more bit of evidence, I'm sorry, just popped into my head that I wanted to raise, which is really challenging. And I love the piece uh, by William Perez in that issue called oh, The Trouble yes. with Anestis. Yeah, I, I know him well from the boot camps. And he's talked to me about this over the years. Um, his personal story, um, The Trouble with Anesthetizing the Dead. And I don't know if you saw in the latest issue, there's a letter to the editor from a woman doctor who had the same thing happen to her. And she agrees with him. Um, and so this idea that anesthesia and anesthesiologists are used in organ retrieval operations exactly the same way they are used in operations that are done on people to cure them of something. And so why would you need that if they're dead? It seems like we're treating the corpse slash patient the same way, even though we a priori already declared them dead. Right. And they're not dead because you wouldn't do that to a corpse. And then Bill makes the next point, which is really jarring. He started thinking to himself, wait a minute, this isn't the patient. The patient is somebody else, but this is my patient. I'm, I'm using anesthesia on this person, but I'm supposed to be thinking about somebody else. And it just made him realize something's off here. Do, do you believe, I guess, in theory, that the concept of brain death is completely untenable under any circumstances or with any rigorous criteria? Or do you believe that it is possible, but the criteria just cannot be made stringent enough currently? I'll go back to our distinction between the organ in your skull being dead and the person being dead dead. And I would say that it seems pretty clear in the case of TK that the organ in his skull was, was dead. Um, but even he wasn't dead. So therefore, no, the way I see everything now and everything I've read, I don't think it's tenable at all that um, brain death being diagnosed in any of the various ways could be dead dead if the whole body and all the vital functions are integratedly functioning for the sake of the whole, which they are. Pete, this has been a tremendous interview. Thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. Uh, please, God, this uh, conversation will continue in many ways. Thank you guys for doing it. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll be back with the answer to the trivia question to wrap up right after the break. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical trivia question. As I mentioned earlier, Dr. Tom Zabiega at the beginning of the show at one point mentioned that part of brain function includes the pituitary gland, which we call the master gland of the body. It controls the production of many hormones. But which of the following hormone producing glands or endocrine glands does the pituitary not directly influence? the adrenal glands that make steroids, the ovaries that make estrogen and progesterone, the pancreas that makes insulin, testicles that make testosterone, or the thyroid gland that makes thyroid hormone. Did you, you knew this one, of course, Andrew. I did, just because we end up testing so many of the other ones in practice, but the answer is the pancreas. Exactly. Yep, there is no hormone that the pituitary gland makes that directs the pancreas to make insulin. It's just whatever you end up eating, how many carbohydrates. Right. That's what stimulates the pancreas with insulin and glucagon and other hormones that it makes. So now you know. So in the you know three minutes that we have, or two minutes we have left here, I think Andrew and I were both kind of persuaded after each of the last two episodes by the people we had on. We, we are so blessed to have so many minds working on this. And, uh, you know, honestly, very good, ethical, holy people. And uh, I'm so happy that we were able, it's kind of a first for Dr. Doctor. You know, there's, there's not a lot of, of debate in Catholic medicine on various issues. There's so many things people, it's kind of been worked out before. And so I'm very happy. A frozen to, embryo one is one that's still up for debate. We there's a couple, and I'd, I'd be interested in trying to tackle a few more issues like this. I mean, in medicine, we're used to people debating topics with new evidence and this and that. 
I don't see it that much in the CMA and in Catholic ethics in general. I mean, St. Thomas did so much of this so long ago. <laughs> I mean, there's not, there's slim pickings, but I think this is a place where I think we really need to come together. And hopefully these two episodes back to back will lead people further in this. Yes. Uh, maybe we'll have episodes in the future where each of the panelists respond to what they hear in the other ones, but we wanted each side to make it its case for what is right. And uh, as they pointed out, you know, we don't have moral certitude. It's not a, a done deal like abortion's a done deal. That's wrong. Contraception's a done deal. That's wrong. This is still somewhat of a gray area. Uh, and we hope to have less of those as time goes on. Right. And and the thing that I, I really appreciate about my faith and about medicine in general is that we ultimately know there's one truth, and that is God. And any confusion is on our part and our frailty. So Hopefully with time and the help of other people, we can bring this, bring clarity with charity to, Amen. to the issue of and brain death. So thank you all for listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning and official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor and invite a friend to, to listen. And please rate and review our show to help new listeners find us. And please send us questions or tell us something you've heard on Dr. Doctor, how maybe it changed your life. And also be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com.